Peter chapter 3, we continue our series in Peter's first epistle. This is the Apostle Peter who walked those three years with the Lord Jesus, uh, denied him on that night Jesus betrayed, eyewitness to the resurrection, a profoundly changed man. He is writing to us the authoritative word of God. We trust that what he has written is nothing less than the very word of God from God's mouth, God's heart to us. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 with a specific focus on verse 15, as I promised you last week. 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. The last time I watched the Summer Olympics on TV a number of years ago, I noticed how many of the foreign athletes lived in America and trained at our universities. It must mean that America, in their mind, is the safest, healthiest, most beneficial place to train as an Olympic athlete. Is the Church of Jesus Christ a place so attractive that those on the outside can't wait to get in? Is our church, Wallace, a safe and healthy environment for a hurting and a searching person? Is it an attractive, winsome, vibrant, nurturing community? Outsiders are kicking the doors down because their skepticism is welcomed. We take no offense at their differing points of view. Their alternative lifestyles are not off-putting, and their cynicism about Christians is understood. Are we that? I guess it depends on what they see. What should they see? Let me answer that question by just doing a flyover of verses 8 through 16, because Peter is showing us and the watching world, what ought to be seen, seen in such a way as to be an, an invitation to come in and join us. So for example, those looking at the church from the outside ought to see, according to verse 8, how we treat each other. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We don't have that. 
Why would those not familiar with Christianity have an interest in being here? They should see, verse 9, how we respond to foul treatment. Peter writes, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, to this you were called that you might inherit a blessing. They ought to see, according to verse 10, our vision of the good life, namely the way we speak. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Something heard in our words, that is an invitation to hurting, struggling, different people to come in and feel safe and at home. They ought to see, according to verses 13 and 14, how careful we are to do what is right, even when it's not easy. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed to this you've been called. And finally, verse 16, they ought to see how we treat, how we respond to slander. Peter writes, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When you put all that together, what do you have? A community of hope. A place people speak and live and act and react in such a way that betrays they have a confident certainty of a future glory. That's what hope is. Confident certainty of being in the presence of God forever, safe with God. I think that's badly needed to be witnessed in this life amidst an increasingly cynical world. So verse 15 helps us understand hope. It's a verse instructing Christians how to respond verbally when the opportunity arises to speak about their hope. Here's what we see. Three components of biblical hope. The heart in which hope thrives, the reason for our hope, and the demeanor of our hope. Those are the three things. Number one, the heart in which hope thrives. Again, as we saw last week, Peter writes, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. His point is this, the distinct feature of a heart in which hope thrives is its Lord. Now, what may not be obvious on the, on the face of it is what the Bible teaches elsewhere, and that is this. Everyone has a hope in their heart. Everyone. You don't have to be religious to have a hope. All of us find something that we ultimately bow down to as Lord. There is something in our lives, an ultimate, to which we attach our final sense of security and significance. So when you inspect the chambers of your heart, what is it you see you really live for? What drives you? What must you have in order to be happy, to be whole, for life to be worth living? That's your Lord. That's sort of the ultimate source of your hope. If you live for control, if you live for pleasure, if you live for wealth, if you live for your health, if you live for the approval of others, that's what rules you. And when that thing is threatened, you panic. And when you don't have it, you feel like dying. When you fear losing it, it proves it controls you. 
The Bible calls these things false trusts because all of these are out of your control ultimately. And we human beings wreck our lives seeking to base our welfare on things that are out of our control. Your hope is ultimately measured by the unchangeableness of the thing that you trust. And so Peter is saying, revere Christ, respect Christ, set apart Christ above all authority. (laughs) Stop ruling yourself (laughs) according to your own whims and desires. Bow before Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. He is enthroned on as king in our hearts. Can I use the language of last week's sermon by way of a little review? Because Jesus is Lord of all, he is the one that you most. Jesus is the one you most adore, admire, and love. Jesus is the one you most want to please, you most want to imitate, you most want to make a difference for in this life, you most consult when you need anything. You most depend upon. Jesus is your most. And here's Peter's point, it seems. When Jesus is your most, you want to make him known to others. So if I have very little desire in my heart to make Christ known, as Jamie already prayed for us in in the service, he probably isn't functioning as my most. And Peter is making this point as well. I'll say say that again. When Jesus is your most, you want to make him known to others. You want that hope to be known. Correspondingly, because Jesus is Lord, he deserves the most of every person in this world. He is worthy of. He deserves. He ought to be getting the most of every human being that is breathing on the earth. He's Lord. So when you fear the Lord, you have nothing to fear. That's the first thing we can say. The hope, the heart in which hope thrives. Jesus is Lord. He never lets down his own. Full of compassion, we sang about. Number two, the reason for your hope. Peter says, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. He's anticipating situations, Peter is, where those outside of the Christian community notice something about you. And they want to know, why aren't you devastated in cynicism in the world that we're living in right now? How can you live with peace in the face of cancer? Why aren't you panicking that now that a hurricane has destroyed your home? How can you be gracious to those who are belittling you? He's anticipating people notice your hope. So let's pick this verse apart phrase by phrase. It's one of those verses that just says, take me phrase by phrase. Okay, we will. (laughs) He says, always Be ready. When Christ is Lord, he produces a readiness and eagerness to speak for him. And it doesn't mean you have to wait to be asked. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. When you go fishing, you go to the place the fish are with the kind of bait. You don't fish in the ocean 
with the same fly Marty uses in the streams of Montana. And you don't use in the streams of Montana a lure that you use in the depths of the ocean. <laughs> so readiness is about preparedness. I confess to you, I could tell stories right now, I'm not going to bore you, of times I wasn't ready spiritually to speak of Christ when there was an opportunity, and it was a disaster. It was bad. Always be ready. So how sleepy am I spiritually? We looked at Sunday school this morning, in my Sunday school, how Peter would go on in a second epistle to say, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Stir you up. It means to awaken from sleep. No desire to make your hope known to someone else. You're probably sleeping spiritually. We hear echoes here of Paul passing the baton of his apostolic ministry in his last epistle, 2 Timothy. He writes to Timothy in chapter 4, always be ready in season and out because the time will come when they will not endure sound instruction but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and turn aside from the truth to miss Timothy be ready in season and out so A always be ready B to anyone who asks you the ask there is present tense seems to be every time someone asks you. Who would you like asking you about your hope? Everyone, anyone, parents, your kids. Your neighbor asking you about your hope, those people that you work with, your friends, your family. Don't you want anyone in your sphere of influence asking you about your hope? Why would they ask? If they asked, if they took the initiative, it's likely they noticed something. You earned their trust. There was a level of curiosity. Something you said, something you did, something you didn't do, something, a way that you reacted. Man, I can't tell what captivates you. I want to know about that. What controls you? I want to know about that. He says, see, make a defense. This is the Greek word apologia, from which we get the study of theology of apologetics, defending the faith, giving a rational account of the Christian faith. Apologetics, be ready to make an apologia. I think in this case, it's an informal explanation, a defense of your position. We should be ready, all of us, to articulate the objective truths of Christianity. So what is our hope? It's that my circumstances don't determine my happiness. And my performance doesn't determine God's acceptance of me. And my faults don't condemn me. And my strengths don't define me. And I have abandoned the illusion of self-control, self-rule, because Jesus is my Lord. My hope is a man who triumphed for me in my place over the law of God, sin, and death, and he rose from the grave on the third day. Jesus Christ has the righteousness and the power and the authority to usher me into the presence of a holy God forever. Do you know any religious leader who ever claimed to do that? Just one. 
Just one was that audacious to claim to have what it took to cleanse you of your sin, make you perfect in the sight of God, and bring you bodily into God's presence forever. One man claimed that, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, suppose you're out wandering and you're looking for the path to heaven and you want to distinguish it from the path to hell. It's a good thing to want. And you come to a a divergence in the many paths. And on these paths, you see the tombstones of all the religious leaders that the world has known. And on top of those tombstones, the writings of all the religious leaders the world has known. And over here stands one living with the brilliance of God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A living man. That's the one you're going to follow into glory. I referenced a book a number of months ago uh, called A Distant Grief. It's written by a pastor in Uganda during the horrible reign of Idi Amin, Akefa Sampangi. It's right up there on the bookshelf. I think Michelle Cavanaugh wanted to know. No, who? um, It doesn't matter. D. D wanted to know where it was. D, it's up there. Listen, Listen to what he wrote, just this paragraph of what he wrote that substantiates how important the resurrection is to Christian hope. The church had gone underground because of the fierce persecution. Our meeting closed at 3 a.m. But many of the elders stayed for conversation, and we talked together. As we talked together, our thoughts turned to the resurrection. It was no longer a distant idea, but a concrete reality. Something so close that it gave power to our lives. Quote, it is because of the resurrection that we are free, Kiwanuka said, speaking with noble dignity. We are not slaves to this life or to our fear of death. We are slaves to Jesus Christ and he is risen from the grave. Pretty powerful stuff when your life is on the line. One of the elders who had been in the Makinji prison nodded his head, his face covered with bruises and his nose broken. Quote, we're persecuted for the hope that is in us. Our hope is the resurrection. We have nothing to worry about. Christ will fulfill our claims. Several others spoke and then Dr. K spoke in a low, earnest voice. I have handled many dead bodies, and more come every day. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall live again. I tell you, a man who says that, you need to listen to him twice. Amen. Biblical hope, beloved, is grounded in the promise of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ is our hope. Christ is our future. The reason we Bible believers are so confident is not in our ability to do what is right. It is in Jesus' ability to fulfill his promise who says, trust me, I will make you like myself in a resurrected, sinless, never-to-die body that will never be subjected to sadness, sorrow, sin, death ever again. Jesus has the power, he proved it through his resurrection, to make you like himself. That's the Christian hope. That's the Christian hope. D, 
Always be ready to anyone who asks to make a defense for a reason. It's the Greek word logos. You may recognize that as the Greek word for word. Here it seems to be an irrational account. And so people may wonder about the relevance of Jesus Christ to contemporary culture. That's fair. Most people outside of the church who don't share our worldview think the church is completely irrelevant. They do. Maybe we're to blame for that in some degree. That's a good conversation to have. But Christ isn't irrelevant to you because you have a reason. You have a rational account of his subjective work in you. This doesn't make Christianity true. You'll run into people of other religions who will tell you subjectively what God did for them. I never believe it because it wasn't done by the Spirit of Christ. If that makes me close-minded, so be it. But because someone claims to have a subjective experience does not make it true. Christians do, you do, nonetheless, have an account of what difference Christ has made in your life. The source of your hope has come into the present. He's broken in. He's changed you. He's challenged you. He's rescued you. He's delivered you. He's convicted you. He's humbled you. He's helped you. We have something to say about a change in our lives. Uh, Christians often call it a testimony. This is the difference Jesus made in my life. Again, it doesn't make it true. What makes it true is my last point. History. Christ has risen from the dead. But that living Christ has come into my life and changed me. So if, he ha if you sense there's no change in your life, come back again to Jesus and say, we need to start over. <laughs> Savior and Lord, if there's no change. He, look, where Jesus goes, things change. They just do. How can the Lord of glory come into a human heart and then not change? We change gradually, we change slowly, we change in fits and starts, but he changes us, and we have something to say about it. It's our, it's our hope. And the last point is this, and we're, we're looking at the, the, the community that the watching world ought to be kicking their doors down to get in, because they see something manifested, hope. Here's the last, we've seen the heart, the heart in which hope thrives, the reason for your hope. Thirdly, the demeanor hope produces. Peter concludes, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet is powerful here. It means, but, or however. So this giving an account, when you're asked, being ready for the hope within you. However, yet, with gentleness and respect. Peter seems to want to qualify the way we explain our hope. Here's one reason why from my own experience. The more convinced I am of my faith, the greater the possibility I'm going to be arrogant, impatient, and maybe even harsh. I'll just tell you, having looked at worldviews that are available in this life, there is no worldview at all that comes close to comporting with reality like the Christian worldview. I'm convinced it's true. There's no other truth. I'll put my head on the block and have it cut off for that. Christianity's true. It's the only truth. 
Now, the stronger I believe that, the more tempted I am to become judgmental, arrogant. But come on, how can you be arrogant about Christianity? You are what you are by the grace of God. You have hope in spite of yourself. You're the work of God, not yourself. So I think Peter's got this qualifier in here. You people who know the faith real well, you've lived it, you're profoundly sure of what you believe. Okay, now let's wrap this in gentleness and respect. So what is gentleness? Curiously, when Jesus himself calls weary people to find rest in him, Matthew 11, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will refresh you, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am, he uses that word here, gentle and humble in heart. When Jesus calls us to salvation to himself, he invites us into a gentle heart. This is not downy, fabric, softener, cuddly. No. This is strength under control, but gentle. That's the idea in the ancient language. We're gentle with people because God's been gentle with us. We know they're frail. We know we ourselves would never get it if God hadn't condescended to open our eyes We know that human beings innately are confused about spiritual reality. We know that none of us innately wants to give up control of our lives. We don't like to admit failure. You know, Christianity, the church, is the only organization that exists that in order to get into it, you need to say you don't deserve to be there. It's the one organization for losers, dropouts, ruined people. We are ruined We were God-haters, and he saved us. I can be gentle. So we deal kindly with folks at this point. We don't attack them. Vulnerable with our own frailty. Maybe that disarms them. He says, gentle, and then he says, respect. All right, does he have his eye on revering God? Here, there's a judgment day coming. These people, are, everyone outside of, is going to stand in the, before God in judgment with, with respect, reverence for God, or is it respect for the person? You decide. I don't know. Maybe it cuts both ways. But you are dealing with an image bearer of God. They will know if there's an inherent respect you have for them in the way you view them. Let me just finish the sermon saying this. I know most of us get stuck right here. We aren't great at doing this. I'm not. The greatest regret of my Christian life is I'll stand before the Lord and I'll acknowledge I didn't tell as many people about you as I knew I should have. It's my greatest regret of my life, not speaking more of my hope. By far my greatest regret. I think we get stuck. I think we get caught in our minds. There's, you know, we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to look stupid. There's a lot of reasons we could give. You, you know what they are. I'll give you just a little help as we close. And I know you hate formulas. I'm going to give you a formula anyway. Make a friend. 
be a friend, bring a friend. I mean, even I could understand that. <sighs> Make a friend, be a friend, bring a friend. Make a friend, be hospitable. There's a Christian convert of the last couple decades, Rosaria, Butter, Rosaria Butterfield, self-professed atheist, lesbian, uh, uh, yeah, just a very different than Christianity. She was eventually converted through the hospitality of a pastor where she lived. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a Key, right? Has anyone read it? I haven't read it, but so why am I referring to it? You know, that's what pastors do. <laughs> the gospel comes with a key, right? Hospitality. Make a friend. Engage people. Show concern. Listen. Ask questions. I think the passage that um, whoever read it earlier in the service from Colossians 4, was it Joe? It doesn't matter. I've got it for you in the bulletin. I think Paul, in this passage, is giving you some concrete instruction about how to make a friend. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Oh, what are you praying about? Opportunities to talk to others about the hope that's within you. He says, look, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So you can get up in the morning and pray for what? God, open doors. This is up to God. This isn't up to me. God, open doors. God, set a door before me. Here's a relationship. I'll just knock a little. No answer? Then God hasn't opened the door. I'll knock a little. The door comes open. So I'm running in my neighborhood the other day, and I saw this neighbor. She's out doing the yard work, and I go, hey, your husband's he usually does the yard work. She said, oh, he's, he is, he's crippled. He's in a wheelchair in the house. I was devastated for her and for him. He's not old enough to, to be in that situation. And I go on running, and I go, well, you know, Lord, I do pray for opportunities to share the gospel in my neighborhood. Maybe this is an open door. I said I would engage her on my way back. On my way back, I didn't see her. Yesterday on my run, I saw her. Hey, would your husband mind if I came over and prayed with him? I mean, I prayed for opportunities. Why wouldn't I see this as an opportunity? So I just knocked a little bit. Look, don't take me as the great expert here. I just want to illustrate. Pray. God may open doors for you. Then he goes on. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best of the time, and, you know, in the Bible, when, when, it, when time becomes a reference, it's in light of the second coming. It's in light of the end of all things. We'll see it a little bit later in, in, first, in first Peter 4. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Thanks, Paul. This is so simple. Pray for doors. Be wise. Be gracious. Respond personally. Respond individually. Kind of the way Jesus has with you. Jesus befriends sinners. Jesus brings you to his Father. And Jesus speaks the word of grace to us. So let's decomplicate it, become people who are consciously creating an ambiance that the watching world is dying to get into because of what they see.
and they're beginning to come in because you made a friend, you were a friend, and you brought a friend. Let's pray. We do long to see our churches filled with folks seeking you for the first time. Lord, that is the privilege you've given to us in our relationships. Pray for the opportunity to be asked to make known with gentleness and reverence the hope that's within us. Lord, bring that to pass. Uh, give us grace to care in the way you cared about us and sought us and befriended us and spoke the word of grace to us and brought us to your Father. What a privilege to move in that pattern of the Lord Jesus himself. We do it for your glory and your honor. In the sake of your church, amen.